Hi everyone, Christopher here. In today's episode, we have Stefan Brun in the studio. Stefan is a managing partner at Nova Founders Capital. He has started over 30 companies worldwide within fintech, e-commerce, professional services, and education. In 2016, Stefan was included on the Forbes 30 under 30 list, and he holds a Bachelor in International Business from Copenhagen Business School. In this episode, we cover everything from Stefan's career to how you go about building great products, cultures, and marketing in your business, and also how you can become a great learner in any field you want to prosper in. Hope you enjoy this conversation. Stefan, I want to start off with, um, before you entered CBS, I think you're quoted saying you were really into medicine, or what, what yes. was the decisions you were, yeah, what did you think about when you were about to study? That's a good question. So. When I ended up at CBS, that was a bit of a, of a coincidence, I think. Um, in Denmark, we have multiple different forms of high school, and I went to an engineering form, it's called HTX, or technical yeah. examination. Um, so I always thought that I was going to be an engineer or a doctor. Um, as things went, uh, happened when I went through high school, my sort of lowest rate ended up being English as a, as, as a course. We didn't have many humanities language, or sorry, courses, but English was one of them. That was the lowest of all my grades. And I realized if I wanted to ever do something big, even in Denmark, I would need to be able to speak English. And, yeah. and for that reason, I said, look, I need to be able to study in English. And at that point, my world was not outside of Denmark. My world was still pretty much Denmark. But um, so I never thought about studying abroad, but I wanted to study something in English. Yeah. Um, not English, the language, but either I become a doctor or an engineer uh, by studying in English. But I couldn't find it in Denmark. So I ended up studying business because that sounded kind of fun as well. I had an elective about business in, in high school, but that was, I think, a few hours a week for only my third year in high school. And I thought, well, why not? Let's give it a try. So I start, joined uh, CBS because they taught a course in English. That's pretty much the, exactly. the main reason. But when you started at CBS, did you think like, okay, this isn't that bad. I actually enjoy business or... Um, well, I, I think the first half year there was extremely difficult for me because I I didn't really speak English at the time yeah. in the sense that uh, the English I had in my high school is very technical. So I remember, I, I mean, I think my exam text was around the words of the organs and the insights of a bee. Yeah. Uh, I mean, and insects and business are yeah, very little yeah. in common. So my conversational English was completely off. I didn't yeah. know how to do that. I could say, hey, how are you? As anyone could do, right? But I wouldn't know how to engage deeper into a meaningful personal conversation. Okay. At the same time, I had no clue about um, about the words, the terms. I, I think I always brought with me a number of, of dictionaries. So I remember the exams, I was the only one to, to bring three dictionaries. Really? I, I had the uh, English-Danish, I had an English-Danish economics dictionary, and then I had the Oxford Advanced Learners Dictionary. Exactly. And I think I was the only one to ever bring even one dictionary, so I was a bit <laughs> off. Um, but for example, I mean, some of the words I thought I understood, but I didn't. Okay. So I think it took me, it wasn't until halfway through the second quarter, I realized the word interest has a different meaning from being interested in something. Yeah. So, um, so no, that was, that was difficult. So it took me some time to getting used to, to studying in English and studying in business and, yeah. um, yeah, so, so it was interesting, but, um, a lot of smart people and that helped. But you ended up dropping out, right? Because you got an exciting job offer or how's yes. that? Yes. So I, I did finish my bachelor. Yeah. Um, and I started my, my master's, which in Denmark is very common, right? In, in Denmark, because education is free, if you don't have a master's, people ask you questions and say, why yeah. not? Why Same in right? Exactly. I just lazy or what's yeah, going on? Yeah. So, um, but I started my, my master's, even though I would have preferred not to, but I just didn't really see the alternative because yeah. 
I was a, when I realized that I really didn't want to do a master's, it was too late to start applying for jobs abroad, and you can't really get jobs in Denmark that are exciting with only a bachelor's. So I started a master's in applied economics and finance and thought, okay, this is going to be interesting. Um, but I was just feeling like this was just very, very, very academic, very theoretical. Um, so yeah, uh, at some point during my, my first semester there, I, I got the opportunity to to, to move abroad and, and drop out. And How did you get that offer? Did you apply or were you headhunted or what? Well, that was actually a bit, uh, <laughs> that's a long answer. But I think it's exciting and so it's a story I often tell when I speak to students. Okay. So I always thought after I got into my bachelor, when I started learning about what, what business was about, it was at CBS, it's very much around. There's two career paths and then there's the rest. Either you want to be a consultant, strategy consultant, that's in the top consultancy. So you want to be an investment banker, so a top bank, of course. We don't really have investment banks in Denmark. But we do, but not on a global scale. Um, so with that in mind, I didn't know how to do that. I didn't know how to get there. I, I didn't have the network. I mean, I was the first one in my family to to finish high school. So it's not like I, I, I had a lot of people to look at and say, how do they get into yeah. investment banking? Because I imagine nobody in my family knew what that was. Um, so... I had to figure out how do I get there. And I wanted to find ways to get into that. And I thought, if I'm just going to compete on everything else, if we're going to compete on grades like everyone else, there's always going to be someone from a better school yep. with a higher GPA. It's just a fact. So if I do that, I'm going to end up in a loser's game because there's just no way of winning that one. Yeah. Or there are, but they are very, yep. very bad odds. On the other hand, I thought, I need to find another way of getting in there. So how do I do something with my profile that means that people will have to take me in at least for an interview? And then I was confident I could get on from there. Um, so what I did was, uh, on the advice of, of uh, Matt, who you also know, was yeah. at that time my mentor is a few years ahead of me in his career. Um, I'm sure we'll speak more about him later today. But uh, he told me about when he did his MBA at MIT, everyone was in all of these conferences where they would organize events for for people and build up a network that way around. So I thought, if I'm in doubt between strategy consulting and, and investment banking, sort of the interference in a Venn diagram between those would be yeah. private equity. Exactly. So uh, together with a co-student, we decided to build up a private equity conference. At first, it was just a one-hour gig in a auditorium at CBS that we had borrowed, and we would have three people coming and talking. Um, we thought that was amazing. At first, we thought we're not going to get anyone to say yes. So we sent out some emails and to people, and we ended up having more people saying yes to speak than we had time for. And at the same time, we saw that those were quite high-profile people. Uh, Matt, at the point, had promised to make some introductions to some other people as well. And with all of that happening, it grew to more. And it was all of people of a caliber where we wouldn't yep. want to say no to them. So we ended up making it into a full-day program. And then obviously, once you start going from having a two-hour event to a full-day event, you need a lot more speakers suddenly. Exactly. Uh, so we ended up going from a small lecture theater, I won't bore you with all the details, in at Copenhagen Business School to uh, using the Marriott, having a full-day event there, um, the um, sort of going on the stock exchange of TDC, the biggest telecom in Denmark, the, one of the biggest IPOs in Europe that year was announced at the conference. Yeah. Uh, we had all the biggest guys coming there. Financial Times called us the week before and asked if they could come and cover the event. And it completely grew out of what we had ever hoped for. And, and long story short, A, that made me very excited about entrepreneurship. B, it helped me gain an interesting network. Um, and C, it really opened up my eyes for what building a company is yeah. right whether it's from scratch or whether it's an existing framework it's two separate things but this thing of really making things happen got me excited yeah but i think this is a very important concept because doing side projects kind of makes you stand out right whether it's making a small product making a small conference suddenly you find yourself 
yeah, you, you stand out from the crowd, right? So it just shows you, you that a very good story. And I think there's a lot of different ways you can do that to not end up like everyone else competing on, on grades, right? Exactly. So, but can you take us over to, to Asia? Because you lived eight years there, right? Yes. Building a lot of great companies. Can you tell me a bit about the experience from getting there? What, what's the job offer and like how, sure. do you, how do you attack that? Sure. So, so fast forward a month after we finished the, the, the conference, uh, I got a number of great uh, a great sort of connection through that conference, uh, which meant that I, I was very fortunate to be able to to pick and choose between the big investment banks and consultancies. Um, I had set my eyes on Morgan Stanley, uh, given that I like technology, and they at least back then I think they still are, but far number one within technology M and A. Um, I remember I got that offer on a Thursday to join them in the summer, and I was super psyched. Um, and then on the Friday, Matt's called me and he had just been, been offered a job in Asia for, for Groupon, which at that point was a tiny, tiny business in the US, had just merged in some operations in Europe, but we're still a tiny business. Um, and he called me and said, hey, why don't you come to Japan? And I was like, well, that's a big move. Like, yeah, but just <laughs> skip it, skip, skip your studies and, and whatever else you do then come. And I was, to be honest, I was very much in doubt because... Yeah. I'm a person who I've always been very sort of diligent in what I do and starting something without finishing it is just really not me. Exactly. So starting on a master's program without finishing it was just really odd to me. Um, anyway, I needed to talk to someone about this and Matt would have been one of the guys who would normally have talked this about, but clearly he was biased in this context. Yeah, he kept yeah. be the one offering me the, and the, then... the role at the same time being the one to... Uh, to, to sort of get advice on it. So I spoke to one of my other mentors who I worked for at that point. I, I worked uh, about 30, 40 hours a week in, in a private equity company in, in, in Denmark. I spoke to the partner there and he had a bit of an entrepreneurial bug himself. He had been the one setting up the fund historically and been out and about. And, and he also used to work in banking and had also helped me with introductions during the conference. But at the same time, he'd been doing everything from setting up a pizza franchise in Chile to yeah. building up a construction company, I believe, in, in the US. Um, and I spoke to him and said, look, I don't know who to speak to. It's a bit awkward to speak to you about it because you obviously have an interest in keeping me in Denmark. Yeah. But on the other hand, I don't know who else to speak to. Um, and that was the same evening we had the Christmas party that day. And he was like, no, go for it. You live in Denmark now. I mean, you can always come back and exactly. continue. I was still very young at the time. I just turned 21 at the yep. time. So still very young. I could go back. I could finish my study for one or two and then continue down that track. Um, but, but long story short... Um, he said, go for it. And that was on the Friday. I got the offer on the Thursday. And on the Sunday, I had dropped out of my master's study. I had um, canceled my apartment in Copenhagen. And I was a plane on my way to uh, to Japan via Bangkok and Hong Kong. So yeah. um, it was a very eventful four days. And then you get to Japan. And how do you, what's sort of the, what have you signed on? What, what have you agreed to do well, there? And how does that develop <laughs> going forward? It's a good Go. question. So <laughs> I, I didn't really have a specific role to sign up to so okay. I, I went there just knowing we need to build a company and yeah. at first i was very much around just setting up a call center and trying that out in japan because i've been working in a call center in denmark so i had a bit of experience in that but it quickly turned out that, that might not be the best strategy there and we were looking for a new head of sales and relatively quickly we realized okay we can't find that person and uh, oliver somewhere who is the guy running all of the international operations of groupon at the time just came down one day and said you you, you did sales before, like, yeah. Like, why don't you just take the role? And I was like, well, okay, interesting. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, so at 21, I, I took that over. I think at that point, we had annualized sales of $120 million, something like that. Completely insane for, for a 21-year-old Danish guy in Japan. 
to do. I've never run organizations of that size before, let alone of the geographical scope of covering Japan and, and not speaking the language. Exactly. Uh, so it was, a, it was a crazy time. A number of things. I mean, one, I was traveling around with two translators full time, one for my <laughs> written words, so emails, and, and yeah. one for when I was speaking to people. Yeah. Um, and at the same time, uh, I mean, it was such a big contrast to being a student. I mean, remember before you, <laughs> as a student, you almost sort of glorified the, the bankers and consultants in the companies you thought you were going to be yeah. working for. While here, within a few weeks, I got a number of very senior people from these organizations to work in my team and suddenly working for me. And it was just such a way of flipping. And you're 21, right? Yeah, exactly. How does that how does that play out? Because a lot of people you either hire or talk to has to be a lot older than you. Correct. How, how does that, does it feel weird, awkward? Or, do you, or does it like just go, as long as you know what you're doing, like they respect you or is it... It, in the beginning, I, mean, I think the, the awkwardness was on my end, not so much okay, yours. Yeah. Um, it didn't help that I've always had a bit of a baby face, so I always look 10 years younger than I am. That's hence the reason for the slight beard that you have. Um, so it, it was awkward because I probably looked like I was 16 or 18 or something like that, yeah. right? And, and you sit there. But I think given that we were sort of seconded from the global operations into the country, that gave us some some weight. Yeah. And, and that helped us. Uh, the fact that I think probably partly because I was still so young, I was very decisive in my actions. Yeah. The world was still very black and white for me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and I think that told people that I knew where I was going. Exactly. Um, at the same time, especially the Japanese people, extremely polite. So I'm not sure they would ever have told me to my face if they didn't exactly. like it. That said, it is a culture where age is very important. So I do yeah. think many of them found it odd and found it awkward. Um, but... Yeah. But but at this point you're at one of the fastest growing companies in the world. You you are in a country where people work extremely many hours from cultural standpoint. Give the viewers an insight into how many hours you're putting down. Is it is it a matter of working twenty four seven almost in this Pretty operational? Much. Yeah. Much. But can you explain to people because what that means? Because people often say they work hard, but if you look at their hours, it's not always the truth. So can you just like give? A quick summary of like how a typical day would look in terms of sure. hours and sure i think i'll be in the office at around eight and so so my schedule would be like this after i took on the head of sales role um monday evening i would fly out to whatever city i would spend all my monday there um i would then in the evening on the monday go to another city so i would probably arrive at the hotel at 2 a.m 3 a.m i would then be in the office the next morning at 8 8 30 uh, in that city i would go to stay there maybe one or two days and I would go like that and then spend the week in two or three cities. I would then be back in Tokyo on the Friday where we would have an all hands meeting with everyone in it and, and sort of an update on the business as a whole. And then of course, catching up on all the things you don't do when you're on the road, I would get that done on the weekend, right? So making sure that all the emails get responded to, et cetera, all the things you don't have time for when you're, when you're out in the countries exactly. and, and visiting people because you don't want to go visit a, a team and then spend all of your day on your emails, right? Exactly. Um, so I think in hindsight, it was great from a business perspective. I would have loved to see more of Japan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I, I didn't get to see much outside of whatever I could just walk to from my, my apartment in yeah. Tokyo. Um, but, but yeah, it, it, it was extremely fun and I think it's, it, helped us all in that team on accelerating our, our learning etc quite quickly we're all quite young but obviously when you work that much and you work that hard you also get more learning as long as you take your time to reflect on what you're what exactly you're but do you during this time of period feel like it's the hard work is taking a toll on you or, or are you just feeling this incredible bus in building companies so it just goes like 
it becomes a lifestyle very quickly and it, you doesn't, it doesn't feel like work all the time. Or No, no, it, it never felt like work to me. I mean, to me, this was just one big game and it still is to some extent. I okay. love what I do and I think it, it, I never dread doing what I do in yeah. the sense that, I, it, of course, there's things that are less fun than other, but overall, the point is more that I do something and I find it exciting and I jump from one problem to another and that's something that appeals a lot to me. When we look at it in the context of, of what we did in Japan and Asia, and I think it's it's quite the same for all the other businesses. Yeah. It it never really took a toll on me in the sense that I felt like this was not fun. Exactly. Um, truth be told, it was a bit odd in the beginning in, in Japan because it was such a big contrast. It was the first time I was really alone in the middle of the world, right? I mean, I would be in a small city in, in Japan my translators would have gone home at 10 when they ended but traditions are traditions and in japan you would go out and have dinner with the local team so we go out and at first they wouldn't speak a word of english then we got a bit of sake and then they spoke a little bit of english and then they got a bit more sake and then you couldn't understand what was told right so yeah, yeah, yeah. you would sit there and at, at some point in the, in the evening there would be a lot of drunk people um and i would walk home and i'll be in a city i've never been in before nobody speaking the language that i speak or understand yeah and then knowing that you need to do the same thing the day after. That was a big contrast from having been a student where you know a lot of people around campus, you know the people you're working with, whether it's a routine, et cetera, where the big contrast here was you need to make up your own routines. Uh, I'm a big creature of habit, if you will, so I need to build these routines, and that became hard for me. Exactly. Um, and that was something I needed to adjust to and, and figure yeah. out how do I adjust better when the circumstances change so drastically. Can you give an insight into every company you've been involved in in Asia? Because now we talk about Groupon, but at the end we we, cut, we sort of know the story from Matt that Nova came up and all the other stuff. But you still have been working in some big companies, right? Sure. Through Rocket as well. But sure. can you just give an insight into into the companies you've been building in Asia? Because it's quite a quite a unique portfolio you've been working with. Yeah, so we've been doing quite a, a few different things. So we almost did Groupon. Then with Rocket afterwards, we did a lot of e-commerce. So we built a lot of of companies within fashion e-commerce. So, so like Rocket, Zalando types, yeah, exactly. right? So Rocket did Zalando, they saw that worked well, so they wanted to do that across the world uh, and, and we helped them expand that to, to many, many other countries. We built sort of more general e-commerce, so think uh, like Amazon, et cetera, businesses. Uh, the biggest one of those being Lazada, which was acquired by Alibaba for around a billion US dollars. Um, so that was the Rocket. We also did a bit on, on food delivery. We, did, we tried to even do um, uh, online furniture sales which works better in some countries than others, let me put it like that, yeah, yeah. Uh, which was exciting. Um, and those were the, the main business models in, in the rocket time. Yeah. Then we left that, we built up uh, price comparison. We built up uh, stuff in other areas of e-commerce. We built a digital marketing agency, which we sold. Um, we have also done a digital insurance broker. Yeah. Um, and, and a tech company, right? Start? It's a tech company, yeah. yeah. It's online. Uh, then we have Vendigo now, which is in the point of sale financing space. Yeah. Um, so I think those are the main business back then. And now today, obviously, we're doing many more, more things. But it's I'm a sure lot, right? So I think to, I hope people recognize that there's a lot of companies built in. We're talking about a period between like around eight years, right? Now. Correct. So, but um, can you take us some, when you go back to Europe, like, because Asia is, there's so much things we can learn from Asia. and. I also want to hear you on some of the most valuable lessons you bring home from Asia. But from my experience, like Asian companies are very interested in building a bigger moat around the businesses. So basically, if you take like WeChat, they want to build a platform for everything. While in the US, maybe you have more like 
you solve one customer need. So take like LinkedIn professionally, Instagram, nice pictures, Facebook, the biggest one. But still, US seems to be very focused on solving one problem extremely well. But from my point of view, Chinese companies, if you take Alibaba, they want to build finance, logistics, and e-commerce at the same time. Can you give us an insight into how you view like the most valuable lessons from Asia and how to build companies and, sure. and how we can leverage that if you're building companies in Europe? Sure. Um, I'm not, I agree on the part of building platforms or ecosystems. I don't think necessarily that it's transferable to Europe because I think they don't have the same sort of anti-competitive okay. fears that we do in Europe. So I'm pretty sure we would have broken up if we're based in Europe. Um, I, I think the key things to take away there is that they tend to think much bigger in general and sometimes it goes into more things like we see that with uh with grab which is the originally malaysia based uh sort of uber competitor uh in all of southeast asia now but they also do finance right and, and they always look for ways to add more it's the same with gojek in indonesia also trying to do more so they are very expansive um but also because of the way asia i think and, and obviously not asia is not one thing right but yeah, so i'm yeah. talking very much out of a, a southeast asian yeah. base it's been a land grab for many business models because once you saw they worked, it was more a matter of time rather than uncertainty about whether they would work. So because of that, you have this mentality of a land grab when it comes to the big business model. The same with Groupon, right? You yeah. wanted to get in there, you wanted to get big first. And there'll always be a ton of competition. Remember when we joined into, or not joined, we entered China uh, together with Tencent actually, so to the company behind WeChat. Uh, TechCrunch estimated there'll be 1,300 competitors, right? And it's just such a crazy number. But you go in there and everyone is very opportunistic, everyone is very flexible, everyone is just trying to do whatever it takes to, to succeed, right? And it's the same across all of the countries. And I think it's it's something where in, in Europe, at least sometimes it can be a little bit too idealistic about what it should exactly. be, whereas they're extremely opportunistic in a very constructive and, and very entrepreneurial sense. I mean, it, it still strikes me how entrepreneurial people are in many countries in Asia. Yeah. But so, so still, maybe the, the most valuable lessons to take from China is to think big from the gate, right? Yeah, I, th I think China is China and India stand out. Okay, yeah, very different from the rest of, of Asia. Yeah, yeah, in the sense that they are very unique. Yeah, and of course every country is very unique, but it's just such a different game there. Just like the US, right? You don't go to US by chance. You ha you have to go there with a very US specific strategy. Whereas in, in Europe, for example, you can enter Europe and you can adjust a bit. And while it's yeah. different, and we like to say they're a bit different, which is the same in Asia, yeah. there are also some similarities, right? Exactly. But India and, and China and the US still see it as three completely separate markets. But okay. if you look at, at all of them, and I'm, I'm not sure where it comes from culturally, but many of the countries in Asia have very entrepreneurial spirits and cultures, which is, is very admirable. Exactly. So let's move a bit forward because we wanted to break down. I thought of wanted to make like a, a master class in building companies and I want to start with product building mm -hmm. because you've been involved in a lot of products. You also have a passion for product in your blog, right? Writing a lot about it. So you have a statement that it says like in a startup, you have to be bold or die quick. Mm -hmm. Can you give us an intro to thinking behind that and why, sure. it's, why it's important to take bold bets on the start and don't only optimize for yields of two, three percent in every decision? Sure. Um, so, so first of all, in product, I think it, it is a passion, but I, I would say it's probably something that I've, I've learned in the hard way, and I'm not sure I'm, I'm, I'm at the finish line yet. I think there's still far to get there. Yeah. But I think what we have learned so far is that it's very easy to make micro-optimizations, right? And especially as you start out, if, if you look at a continuum from one version to another version, and there's a million different versions in between, like, so 
very complicated design, very simple design, for yeah. example, right? People tend to put their eyes in just one specific segment and then optimize just around that. The challenge is when you're doing that, first of all, you don't know where the macro optimum is, you know where the micro optimum, the, the, the global maximum is, is missing. But the second challenge in it, that is the closer those two are to each other, the smaller the difference in performance. Yeah. And because the smaller the difference in performance, just mathematically speaking, it will take you longer to realize which one is better because you won't get to statistical significance between two versions if they're very similar. Whereas if you're trying something out that's the night, and of course, don't do stupid things, right? Of course. But, but if you do things that you think are smart, even though they're very, very different, you will get a quicker answer because one of them will work significantly different than the other one, most yeah. likely. So the difference is bigger and therefore the answers come out quicker from a testing perspective. You need less data to make a conclusion about which one is better. Yeah. Can an example be like, if you're very interested in testing, uh, A-B testing two titles in a post that is very similar, you sort of could be wasting your time because those titles are so similar. But if you spend, because that's a normal thing, right? You have two pictures, they look pretty identical and you want to use it as a, a poster for something. Yeah. If you end up testing those things all the time, Maybe the best idea is to try something radically different Correct. and test that, right? I'll give you an example. When we do, for example, funnels in our different flows, right? What often happens is people think about, oh, but should we move this button here or a bit up or a bit down or should we make the button wider? It was like, look, that doesn't matter right now. Yeah. At, at the early stage, because everyone read those Google studies with, I can't remember how many different shades of blue they tried, right? But it just doesn't matter for most businesses. They don't have the volume to get an answer on that, even in a million years, right? Yeah. So for us, it's more about saying, look, let's just rather challenge whether we should have all of that funnel in multiple steps or just one long funnel. Yeah. Right? Those kind of tests are way more impactful. And more of them, even if more of them are worse, even if your success rate in your test is drastically lower, yeah. you will still over time make a bigger increase, right? I'm, exactly. I'm sure you can show it on the screen, maybe yeah, yeah, the percentages, yeah. right? Yeah. But statistically speaking, even with a much bigger failure rate, and it bears sort of repeating, you will still end up making bigger steps forward than you would if you're micro-optimizing. Yeah, and people often forget about, okay, if people haven't studied statistics, they don't really understand the significant level and how like the confidence around it. Can you just give a quick intro in why it is so important to have an understanding of statistics before sure. you go out testing stuff, right? Sure, and, and I think it, it, it's one of the most underrated things I totally find, agree. both within marketing but also in product. It, it's really understanding, right? And you think about just statistics in general, if you want to compare two different numbers, the conversion rate you see in two different products, for example, might vary because of the quality of that particular page, but it might also vary because of statistics, right? If you only have one visit on each of them, the answer becomes binary. If you have two, then you can get up to 50%, 100% or 0%, right? But you get more and more nuances as you get more, but you also get uncertainty, right? Yeah. But what happens is over time, you get closer to knowing what the real version is, so i.e. The, the sort of the inherent performance of that product. So what determines that? Well, when you want to compare two, you want to make sure that you're not just comparing that particular data set out of a total population. And therefore, first of all, the difference in performance between them. And the, so let me get an example of that. If you're looking at making a exit poll for a vote in whatever politics or whatever, if you're talking to a thousand people and assuming those thousand are random, if in the one sample you have a hundred percent acceptance, uh, sorry, yes in that poll, right? The likelihood that the population-wide answer is zero is very low. Yeah. Obviously, so so here if you have a hundred and zero percent, the bigger the difference there is, 
the smaller the sample you need to say something with, with statistical significance. Yeah. yeah. So, so two things there. The difference in conversion rates, or in that case, yes-no decisions, and the sample size you have. If you only ask one person, that's obviously not as indicative for the population if you ask a thousand people exactly. or a hundred thousand. Exactly. That's super important. And and also I think if oh, so, so, so if I can add to that. Yeah. So what we're trying to engineer is we're trying to engineer scenarios. Sorry about that. Yeah, exactly. We're trying to engineer scenarios where we can increase the statistical significance in our samples so that we can do more tests per million data points, if you will. Exactly. But I think that people also need to understand that to get a grab on statistics, you actually have to spend some hours to to work on it, right? Because it's kind of like a subject that you need to do your research and to totally understand it and use it like intuitively, right? Correct. Can we also, uh, another concept I think is very important, if we take like the, the startup's perspective, it's like you have obviously probably read the Blitzscaling book from Reid Hoffman and and people, I think this is the, like the importance of getting the product out there, even though you don't feel it's finished, perfect, super important, right? Because if you try to spend so much time optimizing it, sometimes you're, you're not doing yourself a favor. Maybe you, you should almost feel like a bit embarrassed of the product when you go live, right? And then start iterating on it. So yeah, I think how's also, your experience been with that? Because you, you, work, you work with product and yeah. do you sometimes feel a bit bad like sending a product out because you know it's maybe not 100% where you want it to be? And Oh, definitely, definitely, every time. But I also feel, and I'm going to be a bit contrarian to yeah. your point, I, I, I wholeheartedly agree with your point, so don't get me wrong here. But what I also see is that some people use that as an excuse, that yeah. argument as an excuse, to deploy a sloppy product. Yeah. And I feel like that is almost worse. Exactly. Right. Of course it's bad if you end up perfecting so much you never get anything out. But I've seen so many businesses that say, oh yeah, this is an MVP or minimum viable product. But in reality it's just a not thought through version. Mm. Right. And of course, there needs to be a limit how much you think about things. Can't think about it for years. But you should also not just say, oh, okay, I just got an idea here. Let me just try to bake something together. Exactly. Throw something half-baked out there and it just doesn't yeah. work. But a good product manager probably knows the difference, right? Between a product that you really haven't worked on and just released and a product that you feel you worked on just enough to, to justify it going out in the market, right? Correct. But that and comes from experience, right? Or is it, it's hard it, to learn that just through reading? Or? It, it comes from experience, but it also comes from methodology. Yeah. I, I find that many people who work in product have this, and I think it's a personality thing, it, they have this internal desire to innovate at all costs. And I feel like unless you're doing something truly new, there's always some role model you can learn from, right? And maybe it's not a new industry, maybe it's in a different industry, but there should be someone who's done something similar to what you're doing. And I often find that people tend to say, look, I probably know better. I did my research. I can now think better. But in my world, it's always, let's imitate before we innovate. And by imitation here, it's not go out and copy what a competitor is doing, but it's saying, look, what are the principles that are existing? What are the things we should not necessarily rethink from this get-go? And that doesn't mean we can't test it, but we need to create a baseline of saying what yeah. works, what is a good product before we start being super innovative and try new things out that might be a home run or yeah. complete myth. Because like maybe the end point of products that if you deliver such a bad experience, it's very hard to get the customer back, right? Correct. If you use Airbnb and you're like getting robbed or something really bad happened, yeah. which of course always can happen in, in that scale you're operating now, but you know, you have to also think that if you truly disappoint a customer, very hard to get it back, Correct. I guess. So I want to move over to, to culture now because we talked a bit about product and we're going to cover a lot of topics today. But in terms of culture, how do you define culture? Because I think it's it's a very um, typical thing to only define culture with your values. 
But at the end of the day, the values doesn't really matter if it doesn't come out in sort of behaviors, right? Sure. You can easy, easily see values like you want to be innovative, mm -hmm. but it doesn't mean anything unless your behavior actually backs that up. So how do you define culture? Sure. Just start there. And sure, that's a good question. For me, I think the culture is the collective behavior of the group. So whatever the group is, the company, the team, whatever. Um, so I think that's, that's the very short part, right? I, I like to think that culture in, in an entrepreneurial setting is the insurance policy I have that things work when I'm not there. Exactly. Right? It, if you have the right culture, it means people are operating, if you will, think of them as machines, it sounds cold, right? But, yeah. but that the default behavior of people is in line with what you would expect. Yeah. I think one, one thing that people mistake is that they take culture as being free sushi because they heard that's what the case at, at Google, right? That's nothing to do with culture. So, yeah. so culture is often either something that happens naturally or it can be engineered. Yeah. And I think many people mistakenly just take it for granted that it's like it is or yeah. it's free, free sushi and we can't afford that. Yeah. But all of those are symptoms of something deeper. Yeah. Culture could also be explained that it's what people are doing when they know that no one is watching them, yeah. right? So when they're alone, what are they actually doing? That sort of like gets to the culture. But so in Nova, uh, where we're sitting here in London right now, you you actually taken upon you to write a culture book. Can you give us the insight behind the idea of writing it? And, and sure. why is it necessary to write a culture book? And then we will dive more in, into that. But yeah, so we decided to, Matt and I, Matt's my partner in, in this, uh, and I started by sitting down and writing down the core principles we believe in. We wanted to do that because we wanted to create awareness among ourselves about what are the actual principles, but also we wanted to make sure we aligned. Yeah. Because sometimes you can look at something and you realize, look, we never thought about it this way. And, and, and the, thing, the big challenge with culture as a company scales is that it ends up being so intangible that nobody really knows. Yeah. And what we wanted to do is we wanted to write these things down because it also makes it easier for us to communicate it yeah. towards people working here. What are our expectations? Also towards people who are going to work here or are not going to work on but people we speak with and say, look, if you were to join, this is what it's like. Yeah. So we wanted to have something which is more than just the values people put on the wall. And I think we wanted to make sure that these principles, as we call them, very much inspired by reality. Yeah, exactly. We wanted to make sure that they are to some extent controversial. Not necessarily controversial in a provocative sense, but controversial in the sense that you need to be able to disagree with them. Yeah. There's nothing worse than all these values people have where the opposite would never make sense. Yeah. Because like not being innovative or not being on the forefront. It doesn't exactly. make any sense to not be that, right? Exactly. It, it, I mean, people saying, oh, we want to make sure we do this and we do that. It's like, yeah, okay, great, but, but let's move on, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, so we wanted to make sure that there's a number of things here, like we are super direct, for example, to the extent that people working here, and that's not just that one, but all of our principles, yeah. I think people working here either hate it or love it. I think if you ever meet someone who's worked with us before, they either loved it or they absolutely dreaded it. Yeah. And I think that's completely fine. We'd rather want to be the perfect place for the 10% than the average place for the 80. Exactly. Um, and I think for us, being more articulate about what our culture was, was important. Yeah. Um, but it also means we can align people's expectations, right? So what is it we expect of people? Stuff like, for example, what is our actual attitude towards failure? Yeah. Mistakes. Right? I, I hate this thing you have with fail fast. Right? It, it's so often out there because someone read it in, in a post in Silicon Valley, I'm sure. I'm not sure who yeah, wrote it, yeah, right? Yeah. But, 
But I think it's Facebook's like break, move fast and break things. Exactly. Or? But breaking things, in our case, failing should never be the aim of it. No, right? of the aim should always be to avoid failing, yeah. but you should tolerate failure. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and learn from it quickly exactly, and move on. Exactly. And I think those are the things that we need to put words to. Yeah. But I also want to make sure that we have it there explicit. Yeah. Because unfortunately, there's so many things that are pulling on both Matt and my own time that we rarely have time to sit down and go through every single thing. I'm not even sure we had time in the world to go through every single thing. But as you scale, you need to get the things out of your head yeah. and out in the form that can be communicated to us. It can be through, through videos. If yeah. you're McDonald's, they yeah. do a great job at that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It could be through text. It could be through a lot of different things. But we try to do that. And then we try to bake these very intangible concepts into our culture. Yeah. So I'll give you a good idea. We had a good, um, a good example. We had an engineering team in Hong Kong at some point. One thing there was that people as being engineers, are very much driven by their own development and what they can learn, et cetera. Right? That's, I think, a stereotype that, that's fairly, fairly accurate. Um, what we also just that people didn't feel that they could develop. And we did these monthly surveys and we asked people, and, and one of them was like, how good is, is a place for you to develop your own career and your knowledge, et cetera. People rated it low. I think we got an average of one and a half, or a half out of four, which is not good because if you're yeah. employing engineers, it's really a seller's market, right? So you need to make sure you have it, have it right there. But we then went to people and spoke about what, what does it take? What could we do? And people talk about, oh, they want to go to this conference or that conference. Oh, they want to take this course or that course or read these books, etc. I said, good. For now, we're going to make all of that free. Exactly. And we even got, so look, the only thing is when you buy books, always feel free to buy the books you want. Please, if you could just leave them in a bookcase in your office so other people can learn from this. Right? There's no point in buying every book 200 times. right? Yeah, yeah. Or even better, write a summary afterward and share it. There we have good culture, right? Exactly. So, so the irony is we put up this, this bookcase and it started filling up with books. And what it turned out being was that became a tangible reminder of that part of our culture. Exactly. And, and that I love. I love that these things become tangible because they yeah. go from being a concept to being something uh, that people can see and feel. Yeah. You touched upon it, the, the very direct feedback here and, and explain the reason why. Can you give an example of a direct example here? And how you would receive feedback in a direct way, which will, will like tell you a bit about the culture in Nova that is very like direct sometimes. Sure. Um, I'll give you a good example, which I've always got comments on that makes some people uncomfortable, which I'm perfectly fine with. Um, when we have job interviews, if, if I'm running a case with someone, I will tell them if I think they're not doing well. I will tell them if I feel like that took them too long to get to that answer or the way they thought about it was wrong. Yeah. But I will not do that. In the interview, right? In the interview. Yeah, yeah. I'll do that for two reasons. One, to see how they react on that very yeah. direct feedback. It's, a, it's already a very emotional context. Like people are feeling like, what's going on here? Stressed out about exactly. the interview. Yeah. But it also gives them a chance to correct. Exactly. It gives them a chance to say, look, that was actually what I wanted to do, but I held back for whatever reason. Yeah. So it does give people, I mean, the, the worst thing you can do is you go into an interview and after 10 minutes, you know it's the wrong fit and then everyone is wasting their time, right? Exactly. What I rather want to do than saying, look, as things are right now, I don't think this is progressing to where we all wanted to go. Yeah, we yeah. get there. Show me those sides of you that help me put a tick mark to the things I'm looking for. Exactly. Also, I think the very interesting piece with, with Nova is that there's a lot of young people here. Correct. How does that affect the culture? Because even though you could say that people are in their mid-30s compared to early 20s are fairly close, the generations are not that similar. You know what I mean? Younger people are maybe more impatient, wants to move faster up the organization and stuff. So 
Can you tell me a bit about the, the distribution of age here? Because there's a lot of young people here. Sure. But I, I do think that becomes enforcing of the culture. Okay. So if you look in Ben Harvard's book, the, the Hard Thing About Hard Things, he talks yeah. about the challenge in, in, in when they need to hire a sales manager, right? Where you always have the challenge and why in engineering it works better to promote from within, whereas in sales you might need to hire from outside when you're building yeah. up a company. The difference is whether what you're looking for is just the leadership part or whether what you're looking for is the hard skills they bring in, yeah. the expertise. In our case, a lot of what we do is not necessarily rocket science. And because that's the case, we can teach people how to do it. Exactly. In which case the cultural fit becomes more important than the external knowledge brought into the organization. And for that perspective there, you just risk having a massive cultural disruption when you are hiring people in who's been used to working in a different culture. Almost no matter how adaptive you are, if you've been working in one kind of culture and you would then try to enter another one, it will either take your time to adjust or you might even bring in elements that you can't get rid of. Yeah. And because we're so focused on our culture and keeping it similar across companies we're building, it becomes incredibly challenging potentially, or at least very risky to bring in people from outside who don't have that culture. So yeah. uh, it happens to bring in people from outside, but we always spend a lot of time in our interviewing process, probably more than most other companies, on trying to understand each other. Yeah. So for us, I mean, we, we work long hours, we work hard together, we hopefully work together for many, many years. It's almost like a marriage, right? You want to be dating, and, and for yeah. us that means, in, in many cases, getting people, even from abroad, flying them here for one day, spending the full day in the office, meeting all sorts of different people, so that we can get the right sort of testing of each other. And it goes both ways, by the yeah. way, right? We want to figure out that this candidate is the right fit for us, both skills-wise, but also culturally. Yeah. And they should also test that. In a startup environment, would you need to expect a higher turnover because a startup is often very hard right it's the reason why it's called startup super hard you're trying to came from nothing right and build stuff is it do you need to accept a higher turnover you think in a startup environment compared to like maybe a stable company who's been around for 10 20 years or that's a fantastic question i think it comes down to how you measure your turnover rate i think one of the most misunderstood things is that even in established companies hiring the right people is difficult Obviously, as you mature, you will have roles in an organization that are not as mission critical as other. When you're smaller, everyone is mission critical. The mission critical people are harder to get right. And you will, by definition, have a lower rate of success in, fight, in filling those positions. When you look at a big organization, that means A, you have a number of people where the proportion of new hires that are mission critical is lower, and therefore the accuracy in hiring those doesn't matter so much because you have all these other people that are easier to recruit for. So out of the total new recruits, it's a smaller percentage that are harder to recruit. Yeah. At the same time, you already have a big base of people working there. So even if they all churned 100% a year, all the new recruits, it will still be a minor percentage of the total business. Yeah. Whereas if you're a small team and you're scaling, most of your people have only been there maybe for six months or one year, two years, right? And that's, I mean, in, in most organizations, it's not everyone who stays for two years around, right? Yeah. So as a percentage of all, a lot of people will have been there a much shorter time and you will hire more mission critical people with both are drivers of a higher relative churn. Yeah. And what, what I love about discussing culture is that maybe that's the one field in business where there's definitely not right or wrong, right? It's just like you go for one option you think will optimize the success of Nova founders and you try to make it work, right? It's very hard to sit down and look in a culture and say like, yeah, this is 100% spot on. Correct. Because it's all, it becomes intangible in some sense, regardless, Correct. right? 
Could we, we talked about product, we talked about culture. Can we move on to marketing? Sure. Not to get exceptional at that because in my mind, there's a big shift in marketing. Maybe you should, uh, this shift started maybe 10 years ago, but still it's not completely there yet. But in my mind, like people are maybe watched Mad Men where marketing was about having this great idea on, on the whiteboard and say like, this is how we should, this is a big creative idea, right? But today it seems like marketing has become super analytical. And if you don't know your your way around numbers, Google Analytics, whatever, right? You sort of feel like a bit lost in this discipline. Can you see like how you view marketing as a discipline right now and how it's evolved over the last years? Sure. I agree with you. There's been a big swing from the sort of emotional part to the very rational part, right? The, the optimization, etc. I do think that we will get back towards the middle now. I think the pandemic okay. has swung a bit too far to the data side. What I mean about that is I find that often, for example, let's take something like Google AdWords, right? Probably the epitome of, of the data-driven marketing, right? What I often find is people micro-optimize. Again, going back to this, this bold movements, right? Yeah. They end up writing the perfect ad for that one keyword. Yeah. The challenge is that ad may not reinforce the overall brand message you're trying to get out. And by all the people seeing this one, you end up sending them a different kind of message. If you look back in sort of the classical branding materials and stuff like that, the important part is to have a consistent message across everything you do. Consistency is what really builds a resonating story in your head, right? But if you don't get that across certain marketing channels because they're optimized for something else, that becomes yeah. a problem. That doesn't mean you should just look at an ad and not care about the data, of course, but it means that you need to look at those to say, well, how do I get an ad that both lives up to the story I'm trying to tell? Well, at the same time, give me the best possible performance I can get. Exactly. And I feel like people today have historically been very much over here, and now they're way more over in the data camp. Yeah. But we need to find a compromise. Both ways, right? Correct. So if you could develop your... And by the way, I have done the mistake yeah. of being all the way over here. Yeah, but it's like, I feel a bit, I feel the same because like, I know how much time I spend looking at AdWords and I like making thousands of different sentences. But at the same time, you should always think about, okay, maybe there's something else I should also work on instead of just optimizing this tiny, tiny fracture of a keyword inside. So it's like definitely a, a valuable lesson. It's a bit so similar. I'm like, not saying you shouldn't do that. I'm no, just no, saying no, you need no. to do that within the framework of what your overall messaging is. Exactly, but, but you need to connect those dots, right? Correct. You can't get lost in only keywords without having the whole picture in your mind, right? Correct. So, but if Stefan was given the chance to build his ultimate marketing department, how would that sort of look in terms of either positions or skill sets? Is it possible to paint a picture? Have a very good marketing department should look and operate? Um, I don't think there is a blueprint for that. I no. mean, if we look just on the business in our portfolio, right? You're both B2B and B2C businesses. Yeah. And the way they do marketing is very, very different. The focus on new acquisition versus retention is different. Yeah. The focus on whether it's relationship building. I mean, if you're fishing in a small pond or if you're fishing yep. in a big pond, right? So all of the things differ quite a lot. Um, but how, if, if you look at it towards like sort of the, the generalist towards the specialist argument, do you, do you, do you like people who, who know a bit about everything in marketing or do you like them to be really, really super deep sure. in something or maybe sure. that's a better framework too? Yeah, um, I, I like both in the sense <laughs> that, and then I think there we're going more for the T profile. So, yeah. so we like people who understand everything. Assuming someone is doing Google AdWords, I, I don't like that person to only understand how Google AdWords work. As a minimum, you need to understand performance marketing. But what I would also want to understand is how does SEO work? I also want to understand how does social work? How does email marketing work? All these kind of things impact how they do marketing overall. They also want to understand how does offline work? 
the reason for that is that if you don't understand them, you end up being very myopic and again in yeah. your optimization, you end up not thinking about it. So it, it, it's it's very hard to do AdWords well if you don't understand how it fits into the big picture. Exactly. If you don't understand the fact that certain marketing channels are early in the funnel and certain exactly. are, are later in the funnel. So all of these things come together, but they only come with a, it's a fully rounded understanding. The T model is that the T symbolizes you have depth in one area, but also have the T that covers like- Correct. The, exactly. Correct. So, yeah. so, so you can think about it both within marketing as, as, as its own sort of focus, right? But I, I think, if you look at Brian Balfour, I think he broke it down to three levels. So you have the very fundamental level, which I like, which is around uh, understanding basic programming, if I'm not mistaken, understanding yeah. statistics, all these kind of things. Why is that relevant, you might ask? Why do you need to understand programming to do AdWords? Well, if you want to use the bidding models in there, you might want to use that. If you want to make sure you're tracking words, you might want to use that. You then have levels on top of that, which is around copywriting, behavioral psychology. A/B testing, so very tangible things suddenly. But all of these things, again, are, you can't do. You can't do A/B testing. I mean, you can do the testing, but you can't do it fruitfully if you don't understand the underlying uh, statistics, right? Yeah. You can't do the actual testing yourself if you don't understand the basics of programming. So it all builds on top, and there, in his view, at least, the marketing channels on the yeah. top of it, which I sort of agree and disagree with. A bit. Yeah. I'm not really set up my mind. But then you have the channels that you go deep in, and of course, you need to make sure that you are better than most other people in what yeah. you're doing. Uh, but that's the the classical challenge between specialist and generalist. Yeah. Um, I, I think the interesting thing is the, the example of of Tiger Woods have been used over and over again yeah, as, a, as an example of why you need to be a specialist, right? I, I think there's a number of new um, new thoughts coming in that I, I very much like the stories in, in the book Range. I can't remember the I name of the author. I just wanted to now. mention the book. Yeah. yeah that's awesome. So so if, if you look at I think they used the example of Roger Federer, right? Yeah. He didn't really start playing tennis until he was twelve. Yeah. But he did so many other things that he became an overall great athlete. Exactly. And I think I want to make overall great business people. Yeah. Or marketers or product people. Uh, another problem that people can relate to is how to choose their marketing channel because you have so many different platforms you can use. Of course, now we're talking about online. Uh, major in yeah. The online you have Facebook, you have Google, you have Snap, you have a lot of different um, channels out there. Can we break down some principles in how to choose those? Because just take you, uh, you could take compare your, your group, for instance, perfect example. How do you go about choosing the right marketing channel mixture or portfolio? Sure. So I think there's a macro and a micro optimization for, ch- for this. And I think the macro start with saying, look, we believe marketing has three phases. Phase one is around choosing channels that are on the same platform, i.e. online, and that are trackable and, and very much related to what are people doing right now. Right? So that's usually your AdWords, it's your direct Facebook ads, etc. Facebook ads is a bit on, on the borderline. Then you have the next part, which is people are still on the same platform, but are further away in terms of the intention. Okay? So they're not looking for you. That could be your Facebook ads, a bit depending on the product. Uh, it could be display advertising. It could be Snap, if you want. Um, even though, of course, depends if you're a mobile company or doing something related to yeah. mobile devices. Um, and then we have the third part, which is people who are offline. Those are grouped more together because it's very hard to sort of figure out what the intention is of those people. So that's sort of the three main steps. Online, have the intention to buy. Online, might not have shown the intention yet. And then offline, where you do not know if that the intention or not. You might be able to find a small niche, but that's very yeah, yeah. If you look at each of these different boxes, you need to look at what you're trying to optimize for, right? Offline, it's easy if you want to get a lot of reach to TV because that's one of the big reach channels. 
If you're online, you might want to start with stuff like Google AdWords. Why? Because that's where the intention is so high. Yeah. If you cannot convert people from Google AdWords searching for your product, product needs to be fixed, not marketing. Mm. If the challenge becomes cost efficiency, then we'll start exploring others, right? And, and there, there's always this interesting thing, which is, I believe for many, many marketers, their online spending is not profitable. Yeah. And maybe because they don't understand the full attribution and don't understand how it plays in. But as if, if it was a zero-sum game, people would be losing money. Yeah, exactly. So we need to make sure we're better than the competition. And obviously, if you go for the bigger channels, you will have more and more people competing there. Yeah. So you need to go for the, the more tiny channels or the ones that people haven't thought about yet. How do you do Snap is a good example, right? Yeah. Something that I'm still trying to understand because I haven't done it before. And yeah. I really think there is some volume there. So you need to, to trade those things off and that depends a bit on the I also model. think a great example is that you have to be a bit creative as well because if you look at Facebook, let's go a couple of years back, super competitive channel, but suddenly some smart people said like, okay, let's attack groups in Facebook. And suddenly there was like a huge opportunity if you just target the groups, right? Instead of going to like on the news feed. So it's always like a channel isn't just a channel, like inside that channel, you can have so many different options, right? Correct. So it's a very interesting discipline to, to work on. Correct. I mean, we, we right now are focusing a lot on LinkedIn. Yeah. We believe it's one of the, the biggest untapped opportunities at the moment. Exactly. But it also comes down to what is your business like and how does it work and how do you make all of yeah. this fit into that, right? If you're just doing ads and you're trying to push that, and the question yeah. is, does that resonate with your overall yeah. messaging? But, but this is also like, this is always a work in progress, right? You can't just put down the perfect marketing strategy and keep it like that for several years. You always Correct. have to iterate on it, right? Correct. Uh, I have to move a bit on, Stefan, because we have, a, I have so many other topics I want to talk to you about. But I want to go a bit about how you has, have developed as a, as, a, as a businessman. And, you know, Matt calls you the big rock. You, you be called the Einstein from many other people. So I want to really dig down into how you absorb knowledge and how you mm -hmm. learn, right? So... So basically, we talked a bit about the journalist and specialist comp, so we don't have to go maybe into that just yet, but you developed something called the learning tree. Mm -hmm. Do you mind giving people an introduction? And also maybe just giving an introduction into, into why you think it's so important to learn. Sure. Because you spend a lot of time, it seems like, to learn stuff, right? I do. Yeah. So um, I, I think, first off, I'm probably a bit biased here because I think as a person, I have a very strong desire to learn new things. Uh, not necessarily related to business. I mean, yesterday I started on a, on, on a book around how to build a racing car, like a Formula One car. Um, I don't even have a driver's license. So it's a bit far <laughs> out in the future. Um, but that's a different story. So, so I do read about everything, chemistry, biology, psychology, whatever. What I like about it is I think learning things is about getting new structures that you can help to see problems through. Okay. Mental models, maybe, or as well? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, it, But it helps you see nuances that are not possible otherwise. Um, last week, we had a great presentation at, at President Summit from a guy called Benjamin Sanders, who's a, I wouldn't say boyhood hero, but at least from my business school days, is, um, who makes this great thing. I'm sure you can put the link in, in the notes as well of the presentation, but who shows the difference when you listen to someone play piano when you know what to listen for. I think it's such a great example because the, those details are not obvious until when you get that model. And then when you get that model, you cannot unhear it. Exactly. And I think it's the same thing in, in, in learning new things. And I'm a strong believer that many of the things you see in your business life, etc., have some sort of parallel, maybe not in business, but somewhere else. I mean, if you look at Ray Dalio, right, he's, he's often quoted for being very much into macrobiology. 
So how are, for example, one of the books he keeps on recommending, which I, I really enjoy as well, it's called uh, Serengeti Rules, which is around why is there, for example, this number of giraffes and this number of zebras in Serengeti? Why is it not the other way around? Exactly. Why are there not 10 times as many? Why is it not 10%? Mm. Right. So, so the thing is there, how to understand how they regulate each other, that ecosystem. And for him, that's the same as how commodity prices are regulated yeah. by contracts, right? And it works the same way. So for us, I'm, I'm very fascinated by learning. I think it's a way to always stimulate myself. It's, it's a way to keep me on my toes mentally. Yeah. Um, so it's the balance of, of overloading my head with new information and yeah. then on the sort of the flip side that I do a lot of meditation to underload it, right? So yeah. I try to find the balance between those two. Um, but I think it, it helps me get into depth of what I'm doing. Yeah. I also think that is where Matt and I are, are complementing each other really well because I think Matt is extraordinary at, at thinking big thoughts. It's extraordinary at, at seeing new opportunities. It's extraordinary at, at being very flexible and adaptive where I'm less, I'm more set in the structures yeah. that I built for myself. Yeah. I think I'm very good at building those structures even yeah. when there are none. But I also set myself in those to a higher yeah. extent. Um, so, so I enjoy going really deep on things, uh, which sometimes is a challenge because I can end up running down a exactly. foxhole or a rabbit hole. But, yeah. um, but, yeah. but also an important point, and at least, at least in my experience, is that even though if you learn about chemistry or whatever, you, you, sort, you always find synergies you can take with you, right? Because like you say, it's all about everything is structured, everything's more complex than you believe it is. Like I love the example of like Bitcoin. Like the more I learn about it, the more the less I think I know about it because it's so deep, it's so complex. But again, it just gives you this great like structures to suddenly you can use structures to attack other problems. Correct. Instead of like the first principle, like Elon Musk is famous for, because once you start at the right level, you also need to understand that most of the problems are very complex if you just go deep enough in them, right? So I don't know if you talked about it, but the learning tree, do you want to go yes. quickly through it? There's seven sure. steps I've written down here. So Yeah, I mean, I, I'll, I'll spare you all the details yeah. of the seven steps here, but the idea is just to try to define the tree before going there. Um, so trying to map out what does this knowledge look like if we have to go from first principles, if you will, right? What is the fundamental part? How does it branch out? Yeah. Um, a good example is if you want to do investing in shares, for example, the first branching happens and do you want to be more speculative or do you want to be more fundamental if you're speculative there are different ways of doing that right you can go with the trends you can go with some counter trends etc etc or momentum if you will on the fundamental side your growth your value investing etc right so so you can start to build it up what i like about going on that kind of route is it allows you to be very cognizant about the areas that you do not know anything about and if, for me at least one of the big challenges i have is always do i know enough Right? Do I know enough to make the right decision? I'm always paranoid that someone in the market has a knowledge advantage on mm. me. And one thing, I mean, let's take AdWords, for example. I had the great pleasure and I was very fortunate to have a fantastic mentor in that a guy called Florian Heinemann, who was the former CMO and, and co-founder at Zalando and Rocket, etc. Um, the grand old man of online marketing, I would dare to say. What happened with him is I got an opportunity to learn a lot, but I always had this inner fear that there was something that I did not learn. Not because he wasn't capable of, because he clearly was, but just because there was a nuance or a detail that I didn't get. Yeah. So I like to structure these things so I always know what are the building blocks. I'd like to speak to other people who understand the topics better than me and figure out what have I missed here. So always trying to, again, going back to Ray Dalio, a great guy, and saying, look, how do I know that I'm right? How do I know that that's not something missing? So I validate that I have all of the parts, 
Yeah. And then I can dig down into each of them. And then, of course, you can go deeper and say, within this part, do I have all of them, right? Yeah. Um, but that's super important because maybe a good analogy could be that, let's say if you're super good at math, but even though if you make a tiny, tiny mistake in a long equation or whatever, your answer will be totally wrong. Correct. And you can kind of use that example, for instance, take marketing. If you miss a small piece, that can actually damage you further along the line. So that's why maybe it's a good thing to be super paranoid that do I have the whole picture with me? Because if there's a piece missing, I can go the completely wrong direction, right? Sure. I use an example, I think you used it in the article as well, about emotional intelligence, right? I appreciate that's a debate about whether or not that's an actual field, but for, for a second, just accepting that that's a field. If you break that one down, most people think of emotional intelligence as something that's between you and I, something that's between people, right? But if you look at most of the literature within the field, in reality, it comes more down to, first of all, understanding yourself. So first of all, I mean, there, there are two tracks, right? There's the emotions of others and there's the emotions of yourself. And with yourself, it starts like emotional awareness. That's the st first step. And the second then is emotional management, if you will. Are you able to restrain yourself when you get angry? Are you able to understand yourself when you get sad? Those kind of things. If you look at the sort of the other part, you have the first part, which is around recognizing feelings in others. And then there's the relationship management, which is then engaging with it and, and sort of managing that part. What is interesting here is most people think of emotional intelligence as being the second arm. Mm. So it's about what am I seeing in other people? But in reality, what you realize is that you cannot do that if you cannot recognize the emotion from yourself. It's impossible to see what's the difference between being sad or angry and those kind of things if you can't recognize themselves. And of course, there are sort of the main, what is it, four or five different emotions people have. But there are so many nuances of those. And unless you really recognize them in yourself, or at least intellectually, it's very hard to uh, to see them in others. So so that's, uh, for me, is a great example. Yeah. Because people would dig straight down into being better at relationships if they're thinking about emotional intelligence. Whereas in reality, you're completely missing the first principles, right? Exactly. And very few people would see that. That's a very good example. So given that you now, you know a lot about a subject, how do you go on about making good decisions? Because in your job, in this space you guys are working, you're making decisions all the time. Sure. How can you be sure that you're making a good decision? Do you always need, does it have to be a bit uncertainty in order to move as fast as you want to? Or how do you approach making decisions? Sure. I do, I think, a number of different things. Number one is I always try to speak to people to understand it better than myself. Yeah. So, for example, if you're doing a fundraising process, you want to speak to lawyers, understand it better. You want to speak to other potential investors who, who might look at it and say, look, how would they have thought about it? You might want to speak to other entrepreneurs on the other side and all those kind of things. You also, at the same time, at least I do, I have a very deep desire to understand yeah. what's going on. Uh, to the extent that if I'm reading through even very complex legal documents, I want to see, okay, maybe that's a reference to some clause. Okay, I want to read that law to understand that clause. Or I want to read that case to understand that case. Some people would say that's a bit excessive, but, but that's how I like to do it. Yeah. Uh, but besides from that, I, I try to use checklists because stuff like when we go through budgeting process with our businesses, we do that once a year, right? Yeah. So what you did last year, you might not remember. So I try to look at it and say, look, what were the key observations? What were the key learnings? And, and especially also as throughout the year, what were the things that went wrong? Yeah, exactly. Were there certain areas we neglected to do? Right? And, and sometimes that may become very apparent. Yeah. But again, now going back to, to yeah, the yeah, Ray Dalio, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It becomes this pain of doing things wrong, plus the reflection afterwards that brings the progress yeah. that we need. How would Stefan assess his strengths and weaknesses in your position today? How do you look at that? Because I guess you will factor that in and how to make decisions. 
Yes. But what do you think are your best strengths? And maybe on the counter side, what, what are your weaknesses that you're aware of when you're working? Sure. So I'm not sure if you touched upon this in the interview with Matt, but we'll be very much inspired by the thoughts related to sort of the strength finders concept in, in the US and all the Marcus Buckingham books, etc. And we didn't talk about it, so it okay. would be great so, to... So that's a way of assessing personality. And it's something that we've been spending a lot of time on because we really want to try to get to the core of what a talent really is. Um, there's a million and one different tools out there for assessing personalities. You have your discs, your Briggs Myers, etc. Et All of those come back with usually sort of four letters and, and people are mostly not surprised when they look at it. What we like with the strength finders is that it has 34 different talents. Come back to you, it started with 50 something talents. It comes back to you and say, look, these are the different things, the different traits or talents and strengths that are dominant in your personality. Yeah. What I like about that is that the things that make you great are usually also the things that hold you back. Okay. So if I look at that introspectively about myself, the things that make me great is I think I'm quite a quick learner. I'm quite good at structuring things and breaking down into, into boxes. I'm quite good at being sort of very researchy, if you will, and yeah. really get into depth on things. Um, just to just what? to get to, just to explain that last point, so you you can easily sit down for five hours with one problem. You will not leave sure. the desk until yeah. No, but people, sense. that's a rare skill because people are, yeah. Not you, everyone you, has that. No, people exactly. Want to yeah. More. But my challenge is also that I sometimes do that when I should only spend two hours on it. Exactly. Right? So by being aware of this, I become better at managing myself because I know where my natural tendencies are. And I know that those are my strengths, which also makes it easy for me to accept them as my weaknesses because I say, yeah, yeah. this is what makes me great. But it also what really shows when I'm not at my best, yeah. which is going down the wrong thing, right? Yeah. So again, now we talked about before, this thing of just keep on going on a, on a separate topic, right? Yeah, yeah. But going down that rabbit hole, well, the good thing about my personality is that I don't mind doing that on things. Yeah, I actually like it. I like to understand the sort of, 20th decimal of, of things yeah. where other people just stop and say well it's about half but it also means that sometimes I need to stop myself from doing that exactly because it might not be constructive it might not give yeah. a positive ROI because er everyone has the same amount of hours right Bill Gates is famous for saying I only have 24 hours as everyone else so kind of like figure out what's the optimized way of using those hours is like maybe the, the hardest part of Correct. everyone's life right yeah and then finding people around me who are better at the things I'm not good at exactly um so, so there's no doubt that, that I think that's one of the reasons why I think our team works so well. We're yeah. really good at complementing each other exactly. in important ways. A, a great way of learning is, of course, books. So we need to spend some minutes talking about books. Can we start about how you sort of find books? Is it serendipity? Are you deliberate about what you want to learn? And then go from the process. But first, how do you find a book to read? What's sure. the typical process? That's almost a science in itself. Okay. So I, I usually, either it happens out of chance where I meet someone I respect and I believe their opinions are good and then I they recommend a book and then I read it. Then the other way is I have a topic that I really want to go deep on. Then I do really thorough research. If I know someone who's an expert in that field, I speak to them. I might combine that with looking at what are, if it's a course that's being taught in university, for example, I will find the syllabus of all the, for example, MIT, yeah, Harvard, yeah. et cetera, depending on what schools are good in that topic. Exactly. And then I would see what are the common denominators in the books they choose. So most often you will find that there are certain books that are more popular than others. Yeah. And then I would read those. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, so I would get those and, and I would read from them. 
but but most often I try to seek out people who understand yeah. the topic better. Because the next question is how do you read books? Because at least from talking from my experience, I can never read a book just all the pages without taking notes and without stopping along the way. Because I find if I just read a book from A to Z, I like often forget it if I didn't take any notes or I didn't like summarize every chapter. But people are different here. Some people yeah. just like to write read the whole thing and just like make the mental models or whatever. But how do you when you start reading a book? How look? Now, now we're hitting a, hitting a nerve here. <laughs> okay. So so I, I do that in very different ways. I'm I'm always reading books in three different formats. I have physical books, I have Kindle books, and I have audiobooks. So audiobooks are used for books where the details aren't as important, like memoirs or biographies. Or storytelling, yeah, biographies, right. Exactly. I, I don't do fiction. I rarely do, so at least if I do, that's on audiobooks, but it's one or two books a year. If I look at my Kindle, the amazing thing there is I use that often for the more sort of, I call them airport books, your classical books where you have like 200 and 300 pages around a specific topic. Usually you could have boiled it down to 50, but for some reason it takes two or 300. Because they want to sell the book, right? Exactly. <laughs> uh, the beautiful part about doing it on a Kindle is that you can export your highlights. Exactly. So then I use that, I export that afterwards, and I use that to write my own summary of the book. I do that for two reasons. One, because I can go back and read it later on, so I don't need to reread the book, but I do that to increase my memory of the book. And the second reason is the fact of writing actually helps me. I'll get back to that in a second, but it actually helps me memorize it better when I'm writing things down, even if I'm writing on the computer. The other way, which is my preferred option, is when I do physical books. I always do that with a pen and a highlighter next to me. Um, I like to browse through the book at first. Um, I have the, I use these flags, these post-it flags. I put them in so already before I mark out all the chapters in the book. I told myself in the beginning was just so I could quickly flip to the next chapters. But in reality, what it does, it, it helps me build that learning tree because I now understand what are the building blocks. Yeah. Most books are built so that you have a natural progression from one chapter to the next. And it helps me understand that flow. Yeah. For example, yesterday when I built, started this new book on, on racing vehicle dynamics, which is around engines and tires and race cars, what I saw was there was this chapter in what's called the GG diagram. I was like, what's a GG diagram? I didn't know that and I read a little bit about it. But when I then saw in the intro chapter, it mentioned this GG diagram, I start to build the link. Okay. And given that it's quite far in the book, I start to understand, okay, it's quite a complex thing. But also I did a bit of more reading and I said, okay, that's actually the end goal of building a race car. Exactly. And then it started to put things, and again, it becomes a tree where I can put more and more things on the different branches of the tree. Exactly. Do you like reading several books at a time that you can read 10 pages of one book and the Kindle is another book? Or do you like to only focus on one or two books at a time? Or do you like to just... Sure. I, I usually read three books at a time because I use one for each format. Exactly, yeah. The reason for that being that the physical books I read are usually sort of university style books. So it's, it's an A4 format and okay. it's hard to travel with. I can't open it on a tube. I can't really have it on a plane. Um, I have the audiobooks for commuting and traveling because it's super convenient. Yeah. Going in and out of security in an airport, passports up, etc. You can't really do that with a book as easy as you can with an audiobook. At the same time, I like the Kindle when I'm flying and I'm both blessed and cursed by having a lot of time flying. Um, so with that, I can do that easily on my Kindle and I have a long time to do that. I can sit, put music in my ears and I can right. absorb myself yeah. into the book. Yeah. Or my other favorite, which is before bedtime, the entire room is dark and you have your Kindle book and that's the only light you get because then it's so focused Okay. Uh, and it doesn't kill your... So before bedtime, you prefer Kindle and not listening to your AirPods to listen to an audiobook or... Great. Exactly. I really do not prefer to have audiobooks before going to bed. That 
kickstart my brain too much. Exactly. Can we recommend some books, favorite books ever to the audience if they want to have like top five, top 10, whatever, just oh, wow. browsing that's, through that's, your library? So Ray Dalio has to be one, of course, because we it, mentioned it that is, book several times. I think it's been very influential on, on my thinking. Yeah. Um, I also like uh, Yuval Harari's Sapiens. Yeah. I like it because it's so fundamental in the way of thinking. Um, other books that have really influenced me are all the classics, like Seven Habits and those kind of books. Yeah. Um, but I think for me, it, 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 it's so contextual. Exactly. I mean, it's the very books I would to... recommend to a person who just joined us would be different from a person who's just looking to be yeah. uh, an expert on, on yeah. certain topics. Do you have any other favorite buys uh, you, you've done recently or purchases? Because you, since you're interested in tech product, do you have any products you would like to recommend? Because at least from my experience, I just bought like this, uh, this Ember mug, which is an amazing mug that actually keeps your temperature at the precise time all the day or, or for many hours. So you can actually have the coffee, the perfect temperature, from when you start drinking it until you finished, right? So you don't end up having cold coffee suddenly. <laughs> Do you have any favorite products you would like to you try it out from the um, tech point of side or maybe my posted flags. Okay. For my books. It, it it's really something that I I can spend irrational amounts of time looking for them because I really don't want to start a book without them. Exactly. Um, and they cost four pounds. Uh, the next concept before jumping onto the quick fire is that you said a very important idea here, which I think you, it's worth mentioning is that young people can actually have a huge impact in business. Mm -hmm. Can you explain that notion to people? Because I think it's very normal for people who are not driven by this extreme ambition to maybe think that, okay, I cannot go to Japan at 21 years old because I need to have 10 years of experience, right? But can you give them some insights into why young people can achieve big things early in their career if they want to? Sure. I mean, I, I think why they can do it is because nothing is holding them back, right? For better or for worse, they might not have the mental filter to tell them that's impossible. Uh, but I think to, to go a level deeper on what you said, I, I'm, I'm a big believer in sort of negative visualization, right? Like, what could go wrong? Why not do it, right? Exactly. Why, why not do it now? What I often see, and I find this very, very interesting is, so many people I speak to, they say, oh yeah, I just want to do a few more years of whatever they're doing. And then they want to be an entrepreneur or then they want to do something they really want. Or then, I mean, they're always trying to say, yeah, in a few years, I'll do this thing that I really want to do. The challenge is in a few years, they will still say a few years because there's never a perfect time for most of the things. So the question is just, why not do it today? Yeah. Why not do the things that you actually think will make you happy or that you're excited about or whatever it might be? Yeah. And I find that the older you get, the harder it becomes because you suddenly have maybe family, you might have kids, you might have a structure, you might even have invested Big loans, in, exactly, right. bought a house or an apartment, all these things that end up dictating your life for you. Yeah. And that can be both in a good and a bad sense, don't get me the wrong way here, but it also means that you're more anchored in your current lifestyle. Exactly. And you might not be able to do the things that you really want to do. Yeah. And that for me, it's a change, it's a change, yeah. right? So but you want to make sure that you, you make those choices. And you're the perfect example because you were also a bit hesitant of going to Japan, right? But that decision would have been, yeah, two I'd completely never stores, seen, right? I'd never, I mean, if you'd asked me a week before I moved, I would never have thought of myself living outside of Denmark. Exactly. Maybe in London now because I was interviewing with the banks there and yeah. speaking to them, right? But I would never have thought myself living outside of Europe, that's for yeah. sure. We have to move on, Stefan. So this is a sort of a quick, quick fire round. Sure. We, we start with some concepts and you say from your perspective, if you think it's overrated or underrated. Okay. Uh, so we'll start with creating a marketplace as a business model. It's been so successfully lately. Is it overrated now or underrated to create a marketplace? If you can find a niche where you don't have a ton of competition, then it's underrated. Yeah. If you're going in whatever else, else is doing, then it's overrated. Do you see a lot of potential marketplaces being built? 
I'm sure they are. I'm just not creative enough to see them all. <laughs> That's the other thing in our relationship here. Exactly, at, exactly. At, at the office, I mean, I'm not the creative one. Okay. Higher education. Overrated or underrated? Overrated in its current form, underrated in its overall value. I agree. Moving to Asia. Maybe as a young business person starting out, overrated or underrated? Underrated. Why? For the right people. Yeah. Because of the scale and the the things you can learn there? Because of the adventure. Exactly. It's fun. I think way too many people, and I think that I see that myself, I, I often go to, to speak at the introductory weeks at the Copenhagen Business School. And, and people tend to look, for example, at my resume, which in my world is a big mess because of just things that happen. But for most people, they look at it and it's like there's this line through all of the charts and it looks so coordinated and yeah. orchestrated. So trapped, right? Exactly. But in reality, it was just one coincidence leading to another, leading to another, leading to another. So I think people should just do what, what they think could be fun for them. Of course, don't yeah. do stupid stuff, right? But, but do what is, think, what is fun. I think also people underestimate the importance of being an interesting person. Because if you see a person who has done the exactly thing you thought it would be, compared to a person that suddenly went to Africa for a year, you will suddenly think that, that's interesting. Why did you do that? So suddenly that person becomes more interesting, right? So like you said, probably just for the adventure, you should try to do a lot of stuff. And I think optimize for yourself a bit. I mean, especially when you're young, if you'll have fun doing it. Yeah, do why it. not? Getting at least seven or eight hours of sleep every night. Underrated. This, yeah? Yeah. I don't Is it get possible it. to do in your lifestyle, the way you were working in Asia? Was it possible to get seven hours? No. No? But I'm really prioritizing it now. It's one thing I think I regret. Okay. It's not prioritizing getting sleep. And it doesn't mean I get it every day, yep. but it means that I try to do my best to even it out. Okay. I mean, it, it's not uncommon that I have like sleep 12 hours a night in the weekend. Okay. Let's try a political one. I don't know if you have an answer for this. The consequence of Brexit related to international business and finance in London. Impossible to say or? I have no clue. No clue on Brexit? But, I, you, but you don't feel like you have to move if Brexit is like... Unsolved. No, I, I don't think it will influence our business too okay. much. And yeah. I hope I'm not jinxing it now, but I do not think it will. Um... I, I like the idea of protesting against how the EU works today because I think it's not necessarily very efficient. Yeah. But I do think that if it ends up that they can't trade with the rest of the EU without a lot of different uh, barriers to that, then I think that's not good. IQ as the most important metric for good hire? Not the most important. Exactly. Definitely agree. Important, but not the most. Exactly. Being a generalist, overrated or underrated? Depends on the role. Exactly. But yeah, but I think it's kind of underrated still to, to know the whole picture. I feel some, so many out there I see, take this blockchain space. You, you can almost tell that when people are starting talking about it, they only read like for one hour because they haven't actually gone very deep into the topics. And I think that's a very human behavior in everything we could discuss, not doing the work to actually understand the full picture. That's why I think maybe it's underrated in that sense. But I, I agree, it depends on the role, right? But I find you have many people who, let's take blockchain as an example, right? On the one hand, you have these startups that are done by people who are so deep into it, it is so far away from any commercial reality ever. Yeah, the use case is like way exactly. beyond. <laughs> exactly. Uh, on the other hand, you have all of these people who go into it because of the sexiness of the, the blockchain the space, right? Part. And they have no clue at all. So they're two generalists. Yeah. And I think often you end up finding people in either camp. And that's why I like these T profiles. Yeah. And also, that's a very good point because like people have, have to understand being way too extreme usually is never a good idea. You need to kind of, you can, you can understand the extremes, but you have to understand like the world you should be maybe 
turning a bit towards the middle. Let's try some dilemmas, either or. If you had to bet all your savings on Amazon stocks or Facebook stocks, where would all your savings go? Amazon. Do you have a quick reason for why or? I think they're doing great stuff. Exactly. The, the only caveat to that is whether or not they're going to be broken up by the EU. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Okay, you can take whatever example you want, but if you had to choose, you use all your marketing budget on Google or the Facebook network, if you can only choose one. Assuming, assuming the volume is the same, I would go for Google. Okay. Are you most bullish on the innovation created through machine learning or blockchain? Machine learning. Agree. Is the world in terms of tech improvements accelerating or stagnating in your opinion? Because this is a big debate. Are we moving uh, moving forward in a big pace in terms of technology? I think it's accelerating for sure. Accelerating? Yes. Why? I mean, I, I think the adoption is, is increasing. I, I think one of the things you forget sometimes when you live in a bubble, right, is we live and talk about tech every single day, but many people don't. I mean, I always get surprised when I'm, I'm living in London now, but when I go back to Denmark, you don't have stuff like Amazon Prime, right? The fact that everything here just comes the same day or the day after, the same with our groceries, right? We order them online. Yeah. I order my rides on an Uber, all these kind of things, right? And yeah. it's so natural to me. Yeah. So I think, first of all, there's a number of big steps going forward in new technologies, right? Yeah. And talk about machine learning a second ago, and I think that will change things drastically, right? Yeah. But at the same time, adoption of all these existing technologies by the broader masses, yeah. it's just not happened yet, and that's a progress that yeah. will happen over the next five, 10 years. I mean, the, the opposite argument is basically that, you know, the flight doesn't go any faster. We're not into space anymore. Like those, like there's been only innovation in the bits, not the atoms. So it's like the transportation system. Usually you, you walk around in London and you just see that construction, uh, cars standing in line. So those type of things has maybe accelerating as fast as the communication, as the marketing tools. And but I think there's a reason for that. And I think it's because politics have changed. Yeah. So all of those things you talk about now are driven by governments. Exactly. Or they used to at least. And yeah. they're not anymore. So you don't have those bold investments anymore. Yeah. And I think that's the reason. Exactly. But I think that's another thing that uh, we can talk about for an entire session. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Double down on your strengths or fix your weaknesses? Strengths for sure. Okay. Build the next trillion company from Asia or US? Huh. Europe. <laughs> yeah, but that's what you're doing, right? Work for Founders Fund or Andreessen Horowitz? Uh, I haven't worked with or for yeah. Andreessen Horowitz. We do have Peter Thiel as one of our investors in our businesses. So yeah. I'm a bit familiar with them, but it's hard to compare. Hard to compare? With either. Okay, okay. So let's get to the summary stuff, and it's been awesome chatting to you. We could have been talking for many more hours here, but what do you want to achieve going forward? What's your like goal going forward? Do you have any? Um, yeah, I think this might sound super corny, but it's not meant that way. But <laughs> my goal is to continue on what we're doing now in the sense that I like that we're able to work with awesome people. We're able to give them opportunities where they're punching a bit over their weight class, where sometimes they fail, but most often it goes well. Yeah. Uh, I like that. I like being part of that development. And I might sound like a 60 year old now, but I like <laughs> that sort of guidance. Yeah. Um, and I like that we're doing new things. I like that we can never foresee for better or worse where we'll be three or six months from now. But, but isn't that a good thing to actually enjoy the journey, not be so fixated about where you want to be in two years, five years? Sure. So that, that has to be a positive thing. Um, do you have some advices to people that want to get out there and build stuff, build companies and be successful? Because our audience is very driven about achieving things for their own. 
Do you have any key lessons do you want to give to them and how they can accelerate their own careers going forward? Sure. I think find people who you can learn from. Find the smartest people you know, you you can and work with them. I think so many people are so focused on getting out there and building their own company. Yeah. And I don't think, I mean, I think we, we, it's now it's getting full circle. Yeah, yeah. I, I think you have this sort of master apprentice relationship, which I think is so unique and it's something that the world is going back towards. Um, and I think I, for one, would not have been able to do what I'm doing today if it hadn't been for those relationships. Yeah. And I did not go out, I mean, with the conference, sure, we started our own business. We did that together with people who knew stuff, right? Rocket and Groupon, we did have mentorship. It's not on a daily basis, but at least weekly we would speak together, right? And I think finding those organizations, which unfortunately is a, is a dying breed. I mean, being Danish, if you look back in the 90s, the 80s, 70s, you would have the the East Asia company, you would have the Mercs, you would have the, all these companies that would send young people out in the world, give them grooming and mentoring, and then say, look, figure it out. Yeah. Um, and I think that's so underrated. And people shouldn't be afraid of trying to get mentors or talking to people, right? I think many people don't even try. Yeah. But actually people, some people enjoy learning other people, right? So. Exactly. And another thing, by the way, here, I hope we don't have a hard stop on the time because this is an area where okay. I feel very strongly about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I no, find no. so many young people. It's your time are... that we are <laughs> no, it, it, this, this one is important. Um, <laughs> but, but you find so many people who are in one way or the other, they end up looking for a mentor so hard that they won't get one. Yeah. What I find to be working with mentors is find people that are smarter than you, that can teach you stuff, learn from them, but do that by adding value to them. Exactly. I had many of my mentors when I was a student where I ended up working for them for free because they're doing a project and say, look, can I do something with you? Yeah. Right. That's really how I got to know Matt's. Yeah. So Matt was doing a project in Scandinavia and looking at digital strategy for a number of companies in the media space. I said, hey, can I help you? Yeah. And I worked for him for free. And because I didn't have to get paid for it, that yeah. allowed him to have the time to invest in me. Exactly. Because I would still, even though I would take a lot of coaching, yeah. because I was still completely new and young, yeah. I would still be able to add value. Yeah. Even if I only saved him 10% of his time, it would still be worth it. Yeah, yeah. So it allowed him to invest more in me than he would otherwise be able to do. And everyone can give value in some sense. Either it's working for free, going with them to work out, whatever, right? You don't, you don't have to give value in the actual subject you want to learn. You can find other spots as well. Correct. And then make sure you find people that are not all the same. Yep. Make sure you find people that end up being a little bit like an advisory board to you. So if, if you look, I mean, I, I think when I look back, I probably had four people I would call mentors. You never had a formal mentor-mentee yeah, yeah. relationship, right? But one within finance, one within sales, one within sort of it's called more execution and, and those yeah. kind of things, and, and one more within entrepreneurship. I think all of that helped me more on being a well-rounded profile because it would all come with input on different things you should exactly. do, but it allowed me to see things from different perspectives. And, and also I think like now taking the Scandinavian culture, you don't have to frame people as, do you want to be my mentor? No. Because that can sound very like wrong in some sense, because it it's not work. a very typical, but if you say like, can I ask you for an advice on a project? They are a mentor, but it will not feel like, because maybe, Calling people for mentors feels a bit too much for some people. You know what I mean? That's a commitment. Yeah, exactly. And that's why you need to show value to them before. But what? And what value, by the way, can also just come in showing that you actually do exciting yeah, stuff based on the advice. Exactly. But what a wonderful, wonderful advice you're giving to like make your own advisory boards, right? Because if, if you take a company, you want an advisory board that is can look at problems from different angles, right? And imagine having that for your own personal life. 
gives you so much tools and to navigate into uncertainty, just like you did when you were thinking about Japan, right? Exactly. Are there any else we didn't talk about because we're running up here? Do you feel like we... There's, <laughs> there's so we, many we, things. Yeah, I know, uh, but, but we yeah, have to no, respect I, the time, I, I, right? I do have so many things I'm passionate about. I think yeah. we could talk about learning for hours. We could talk about the mentoring for hours and yeah. the culture part in itself, right? But but I do think those are the parts. Maybe the the one area we didn't speak much about, but that would be another yeah. rabbit hole, is, is the identification of talent and trying yeah. to figure that out. Because that's going to be one of... I mean, it over the years, but it's one of our key challenges as a group, right? Yeah. How do we make sure that we can predict performance better? Yeah. So when we're speaking to young people, we really like being able to find, we call them whispering talents, right? The people who are not necessarily the ones that are already being shouting to the world, look here, I'm coming. Yeah. But how do you find those? And that comes down to understanding personality and potential and all these kind of things. Yeah. Uh, but that's a completely separate uh, passion. Of yeah. Ours. And we covered it a bit with maths because, but again, that's such a, because you want to find the talents that maybe the other don't spot because that gives you an advantage, right? Correct. Because the shouting talents, everyone sees, right? Everyone sees Usain Bolt. It's so easy to see that he's going to be a rock, yeah, a superstar, right? Mm. So I think it, actually the summary, you touched upon it, but at least from, from your perspective, it's like, and it could also be a summary of this podcast. You have to learn things quickly and also understand it. You have to be able to spot talent and you also have to know how to prioritize and focus and spend your time. If you do those three things, you should have a good chance of doing well in business. Correct, right? I agree. So, but in the end, Stefan, we also need to recommend your blog. Give us, give the audience a short intro to your blog and where they can find it because there's so many great articles up there. Thank you. I appreciate you thinking that. Um, so, so my blog essentially is, is a where it's a place where I share the lessons that we as a group learn. So I use that mostly for an internal reference. I find that also external people have it. Uh, use it. I often find people who've been reading it, which is, of course, flattering. But most often, the, the key background for them is discussions I have internally. So let's say I have a discussion with the management team in, say, Finland. I then write it down and make sure I can share that with the other guys in the other countries. Um, and then, of course, with the world. Exactly. People have to definitely check that out. Stefan, it's been a, such a pleasure talking to you. Hope we can do this again Likewise. another time. Of course. More Thank you so much. Thank okay. you so much.